everyone and welcome back to Sunday Dive. We're uh, doing things a little bit differently today, as you can tell, because there's no intro music. Um, it seems fitting for Holy Week that we should start off a little on a, uh, a pared down note. Before I jump into the episode, a couple of announcements. I will not, sadly, I will not have an episode for you next week. I get... Uh, uh, the joy of having Easter Monday off and Monday is when I typically do my podcast. So if I actually want to take a, an R and R day, uh, I, I don't record an episode. So I'm, I am going to do that, which means you're not going to get an episode next week. But, uh, what you can do is, uh, join us as I mentioned a few episodes ago on April 15th for the freedom in Christ conference that we're hosting at my parish, St. Francis of Assisi in West Des Moines. Again, that's April 15th from 8.30 to 3 p.m. I will include the link again in the show notes um, to register. It's completely free. We just asked for registration for a headcount for food. Our speaker is Dr. Matthew Bruninger from Franciscan University of Steubenville. He's going to be talking about uh, healing and uh, wounds and lots of good stuff. And as I told my parish when I made announcements regarding this, don't come for yourself. Come for the people in your life that could use God's healing and God's love. And uh, because likely the Lord wants to give healing and love through you. And so coming to this conference, you'll learn how to uh, understand other people better, uh, the wounds that they have uh, and and why they think and act the way that they do. And, and when you understand people better, you can love them better. It's classic Thomistic philosophy there. Uh, love requires knowledge. And, uh, so, so come learn, know more and annoy more, grow in love. That's April 15th, 8.33 PM at St. Francis of Assisi in West Des Moines. Today, as you already noticed with the, uh, lack of intro music, we are going to do something a little bit different. I'm basically doing a whole triduum episode here. And I know almost always in the podcast, what I do is actually go through the readings, specifically the gospel reading, specific to each um, each Sunday, each Mass. And in the past, I have done episodes specific for the readings for Triduum. Today, I'm not going to quite do that. I'm going to do more of a broad overview. I am going to look at the Last Supper briefly. I am going to look at Good Friday. We are going to look at Easter Sunday. We are going to read, technically speaking, one of the Gospels for Easter Sunday. That's pretty easy to do because the church gives us um, a wide range of Gospels that we can read on Easter Sunday. Essentially, you could read from any of the Gospels on Easter Sunday. And so I am going to break open with you and for you the Gospel of John, uh, both chapter, the end of chapter 19 and the beginning of chapter 20, which talks about um, the crucifixion and the resurrection. Um, But we're going to look at it kind of from a broader point of view. And we're going to get so broad that to begin our time together, looking at the scriptures, um, we're not going to read scripture together right away. I'm going to, I'm going to dive right into an overview to, to do that and to get broad so as to really fully appreciate what we encounter in the Triduum, we have to go back to the earliest pages of scripture because the earliest pages of scripture reveal to us the key to understanding scripture 
the key to understanding what God is doing in salvation history, and in particular, the key to understanding what he is doing and did in the incarnation and in the Paschal mystery, Jesus's death and resurrection, passion, death, and resurrection. And that key that I said that we can discover on the earliest pages of scripture is a a key that is covenant, okay? Now, praise be to God, this term covenant is becoming more well-known and widespread, thanks um, in part to, you know, people like Scott Hahn, Jeff Cavins, and most recently, uh, the the now worldwidely famous, is that a word, worldwidely? Uh, worldwide uh, famous Father Mike Schmitz and his Bible in a Year podcast. So covenant, I'm going to give you a succinct definition of covenant, and we're going to flesh that out briefly. It may sound a little convoluted at first, but I'll explain it to you. So a covenant is an extension of kinship by oath, an extension of kinship by oath, which essentially means that in swearing an oath, someone who is not your family can become your family, an extension of kinship by oath. Now understand that we practice covenant in our society today in marriage and adoption. So in marriage, two people who are not related swear oaths to one another. And in swearing this oath, they become family. Same thing occurs in adoption. Slightly different. Um, the oath, if you will, is frequently in the, in the form of paperwork, but nonetheless, there's still some sort of promise being made some sort of truth being declared. And our society understands that when this truth of a covenant is declared, it actually brings something about. We become family with another who we previously were not related to. Now, when we go back to the earliest pages of scripture and we read how God created the world, we discover that he created the world in seven days, which is fascinating because the root of the word seven in Hebrew is the same as the root for the word covenant. In fact, to talk about in Hebrew, making a covenant with someone, if you were to translate the, the words literally, it would mean to seven oneself. So what we discover when we read the creation account is that God covenanted the world into existence. He created us in a kinship bond with him, in a familial bond with him. As we know, though, our first parents fell and that bond, that kinship was ruptured. And so all of salvation history is God's attempt at chasing after us and remaking this covenant. We see this in um, most of the major figures in scripture. So we're going to see, we already saw briefly the covenant with Adam. We're going to see God remaking a covenant with Noah a covenant with Abraham, a covenant with Moses, a covenant with David. And then finally, God is going to make a new covenant, which is going to fulfill all covenants previously made. So as a brief overview, again, so as to fully appreciate this, and this is helpful too, because if you go to the Easter vigil, where we have tons of scripture readings, you can imagine that being the Bible nerd that I am, I love it. I love Easter Vigil. It's just like one after the other, after the other, after the other. It's so good. 
if you pay attention to it, you'll see that what the church does in the lectionary readings for the Easter Vigil is trace salvation history for us and trace the theme of covenant for us. And she does this so that when we get to those those climactic readings of, of Easter Sunday, we appreciate them so much better. So in Noah, God gives humanity a second chance. If we were to read the flood narrative next to the creation narrative, we would discover parallels such that when God allows the flood to come upon the world, what's clearly obvious if you um, look at the flood narrative through the lens of the creation narrative, what is evident is that God is recreating the world all over again and giving humanity a second chance. But unfortunately, Noah falls in much much the same way that Adam does. We don't have time to go into detail, but, but I assure you that's what takes place. There's some clear parallels going on there in the fall of Adam and the fall of Noah. And so what God does at this point is kind of changes his strategy And instead of recreating the world and starting over again, every time humanity fails, God decides that he's going to raise up one man. And from this one man, he's going to raise up a family. And from this family, he's going to raise up a nation. And through this nation, he's going to draw the rest of the world to himself. And that one man is Abraham. And in Abraham, we get three covenants actually that are made with Abraham at Genesis 15, 17, and 22. And God makes three promises related to these three covenants to Abraham. He says that Abraham's descendants will be a great nation, that they will be a great name, and that they will bring universal blessing, blessing to the whole world. We see this promise of great nation fulfilled in a subsequent covenant made with Moses. Moses brings the the Hebrew people out of bondage in Egypt, and he, through the help of God, establishes them as their own sovereign nation, great nation, okay? What about great name? Great name is a phrase in ancient Near Eastern culture that means royalty. If we look to David, we see the fulfillment of this because David, as the son of Abraham, is raised to authority over his own people as king. And there we get the fulfillment of Abraham's offspring being a great name. What about universal blessing? Initially, we do indeed see universal blessing in the son of David. Who is the son of David? Solomon. And in Solomon, we see kings and queens coming to him from afar, seeking out his wisdom. It's interesting because if we look at the Old Testament with the eyes of the New Testament, we recall that the Holy Spirit is associated with wisdom. And so what we see is uh, Solomon really, in many ways, pouring out the Holy Spirit upon not just the Jewish people, not just the Hebrew people, the Israelites, but upon the whole world, this universal blessing, okay? Now, unfortunately, what happens is that towards the end of his life, Solomon disobeys the three um, laws given for the future king of Israel by Moses in Deuteronomy 17. Because of that, the scriptures tell us uh, Solomon's heart is turned away from the true God. And at the end of his life, Solomon begins to 
commit idolatry. He begins to worship false gods. And this plays out uh, influencing the future of Israel in many ways. Why do I say that? Well, because he does not, he, Solomon, does not give a good example to his son, Rehoboam, who takes the throne. Rehoboam comes upon the throne and um, he is unkind to his people such that the 10 northern tribes, remember the sons of Jacob are 12. They grow into 12 specific tribes, their descendants, and these 12 tribes make up Israel. So under Rehoboam, the 10 northern tribes become disillusioned with the Davidic monarchy and the son of David, and they separate, they split. So you have the 10 northern tribes and the two tribes in the south, Benjamin and Judah. Benjamin is essentially assimilated into Judah. Now, when the kingdom separates, this leaves these two kingdoms now, what come to be called Israel in the north and Judah in the south. This leads these, leaves these two kingdoms susceptible to foreign powers. And um, in the 700s, the Assyrians come and take the 10 northern tribes off into exile. The northern tribes are never returned. Then in the 500s, this is BC, in the 500s, the Babylonians come and they take the southern tribes off into exile. Those tribes are returned. And this is when we start calling uh, their descendants the Jews because Jews refers to descendants of the tribe of Judah. Ever notice that we don't, refer to them as Israelites anymore. We refer to them as Jews because they're descendants specifically of the tribe of Judah. So they are returned, but they do not have their own sovereign king. They are ruled over first by the Babylonians in exile, then by the Persians. Eventually the Persians release them back to their homeland, but they the Persians give way to the Greeks under Alexander the Great. The Greeks eventually give way to the Romans. And this is where the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, find themselves in the first century when Jesus comes on the scene. Now, again, look back at everything I just described to you through the lens of covenant, and then try to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. Um. God made promises all through history to your forefathers that he would be with them, that they would bring blessing. Um, we can look specifically to Abraham, great nation, great name, universal blessing. None of those are being fulfilled in the first century. They aren't their own sovereign nation. They don't have their own king. And they most certainly are not bringing blessing to the whole world, at least not in a tangible sort of way. Interestingly enough, this is the period right before the exile, during the exile, and after the exile in which the prophets are coming and speaking. And this is where we get, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and Daniel, okay? Now, uh, during this period, Daniel in particular gives some prophecies that the Jewish people are able to interpret with such clarity that they know that four kingdoms will rule over them until the Messiah comes. And I already named you the four kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. So you're a first century Jew. You're familiar with the prophet Daniel. You believe in the veracity of the prophetic texts. 
So you believe also that the Messiah is going to come upon the scene. Because that's what Daniel says. Once the, once the fourth kingdom comes, Rome, thereafter, the Messiah will come. So there's a lot of what one of my professors like to call messianic fervor in uh, Palestine among the Jews in the first century. Let's look at the prophets very briefly here from a theological perspective. In Jeremiah 31, 31, we get a very important prophecy. There, Jeremiah foretells of what in Greek is called a kaina diatheke. It means a new covenant. Jeremiah understands that the period in which the Jewish people find themselves has virtually no fulfillment of God's covenants previously made in history. But Jeremiah tells the people to take hope because a new covenant is coming which will fulfill all other covenants. All right. So keep this in mind. This is the scene upon which Jesus comes, into which Jesus comes. And we see him all throughout his uh, public ministry, even before his public ministry, just in, for example, in his birth, fulfilling all these expectations and prophecies. Um, I could give you a few examples, but if you're a regular listener to the podcast, You've heard these ways in which Jesus fulfills these expectations, these prophecies, and he shows himself to be both the Messiah and the son of David. And in many ways, those, those two are really one in the same because a Messiah uh, refers to anointed one, which primarily refers to the king and son of David refers to the king as well. I'll give you one brief example of this in case you're a newbie listener. The, Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River. So I think we just talked about this recently, but in Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River, one of the clearest parallels is with uh, Solomon's anointing and his, um, his accession to the throne. And so in that, in that, uh, in that act of being baptized in the Jordan River, just as Solomon was anointed king in the Gihon Spring by Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet, and Jesus is baptized by John the Baptist, who is both a priest and a prophet. And then Solomon from the Gihon Spring is placed upon a uh, mule and, and taken up triumphantly into Jerusalem. Jesus is going to be placed onto a mule and taken triumphantly into Jerusalem. We saw this all last episode, right? Palm Sunday. And so suffice it to say that when Jesus comes on the scene, he immediately starts fulfilling uh, these things and showing himself to be the son of David, the, the Messiah, the anointed one. He who is going to come and fulfill what is written about in Jeremiah 31, 31. He's going to bring about a kaina diatheke. With that, foundation set. Let's go ahead and turn to the scriptures. I know that was a, that was a very fast overview of salvation history. Uh, Maybe one of these days I'll have time to do like my six, my six session course on that, where we go into, we spend an hour on each of the, the covenants, but I'll have to do for now. Let's turn to the scriptures and see the ways in which Jesus is going to fulfill salvation history while simultaneously bringing about instituting a new covenant. He's going to reach forward and he's going to reach back. And we see this all over the place in the Triduum. Turn with me, if you have your Bible, to John chapter 19, verse 17. We're going to read John 19, 17 through 30, break it open. And then we're going to jump forward to John chapter 20. So right now I'm at John 19, 17. 
So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew in Latin and in Greek. The chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate, do not write the King of the Jews, but this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts, one for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was without seam, woven from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture. They parted my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. So the soldiers did this, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing near, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A bowl full of vinegar stood there. So they, sp- they put a sponge full of vinegar on the hyssop and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So right off the bat, we see Jesus in his passion, reaching back to the past in order to reach into the future and establish something. We didn't read it here at John 19, 17 and following, but we all know that Jesus's passion did not begin on Golgotha. It began much earlier than that. Where did it begin? It began at his agony. And where did his agony take place? It took place in a garden. Now, where did the first fall take place? It took place in a garden. So the undoing, that which is the undoing of the first sin, the sin that came about because of disobedience and that is going to be undone through obedience, that undoing is going to begin in the garden. The undoing of the first sin is going to begin in a garden. And interestingly enough, in, uh, in the agony in the garden, we see Jesus struggling in some ways um, with obedience insofar as he, he kindly asks his father, if it possible, let this cup pass from me. But how does he, how does he end it up? But your will be done, not mine. And so we see the same struggle that took place in the garden in Eden taking place here in the garden of Gethsemane. All right. And theologians who read the account of the fall also suggest that it was not just disobedience and pride, which caused the first sin, but also fear. Okay. For example, the word that's translated serpent in other places in scripture is translated dragon. Okay. So that would right off the bat suggest some level of fear and intimidation on the part of this creature. 
And what do we see in the Garden of Gethsemane? Jesus so full of fear that he's actually sweating drops of blood, which is an actual medical condition called hematidrosis. It occurs in people who are under intense amounts of stress and duress. You can find this in medical literature. Leonardo da Vinci talks about this occurring. He talks about seeing a soldier uh, preparing to go into the battle, so anxious that he's sweating drops of blood. Okay, so our Lord really does take on all the same um, temptation and anxiety and fear and struggle that Adam and Eve did so that our Lord might conquer it. Okay, so his passion, though we begin here at John 19, 17 at Golgotha, really his passion began on the cross or excuse me, in the garden before the cross even came. When we see Jesus here, we see him on the cross crowned with thorns. Why is this interesting? There's so many ways in which this, this simple crown of thorns points to so many beautiful things, so many beautiful fulfillments, so many beautiful signs. But one of the ways that it points to the Old Testament is the way in which it's related to Genesis 22. What do I mean by that? Well, at Genesis 22, we get the story of what the Jews call the Akedah, which in Hebrew means the binding, the binding of Isaac, okay? This is the near sacrifice of Isaac. Now, this is a story that for many people is quite scandalous because here you see the, the way it's popularly given to us, the story is that Isaac is a young boy. Abraham is this, this big, strong father. He binds Isaac, who is probably crying out and goes to slay him. Uh, in some, you know, we all assume that Isaac has, has trauma and needs to go to therapy, right? But the Jews read the story in an entirely different light. They believed that Isaac was not a young boy, but a strapping young man. Interestingly enough, some of the rabbis even put his age somewhere around 33, okay? Now, when you look at it that way, things change. It's not just the Jewish tradition that we get this from. We can actually look to details in the scripture that suggest this. There's two things that Abraham and Isaac carry up the hill of Mount Moriah. What do they carry? Wood and fire. Which is heavier, the wood or the fire? Surely the wood is heavier. What does Abraham carry? The wood? No, he carries the fire, the lighter thing. What does Isaac carry? He carries the wood. Okay, and so... This changes everything. If Isaac is not a young boy, but a, a strong, strappy man, Abraham is over a hundred years old at this point. What we see then is not child abuse, but rather we see a son willingly cooperating in the sacrifice of his father. A son willingly carrying wood up a mountain for his self-sacrifice performed in conjunction with the sacrifice of his father. Does this sound familiar? Indeed it does. And it changes everything. Now, fast forward in the story. We know how it goes. The angel stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. And we, if we, if we pay attention when we read the story, we would recall that Isaac starts to get a little suspicious about the plan. And as they're climbing the hill, he says, father, where is the sacrifice? And Abraham utters something prophetic, prophetic. He says, God himself will provide the lamb. God fulfills this prophecy in an immediate sort of way, but every prophecy has an immediate fulfillment and a final fulfillment. Let's look at the immediate fulfillment. The angel stops Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. 
they see a ram caught in the thicket and they take that ram to sacrifice. Now place yourself in the shoes of Abraham and Isaac. If you have a live ram who is caught in the thicket by its horns and you're about to sacrifice it, do you think you're going to take the time when this ram is really angry to try to get the, the, the thistles and the thicket away from about the ram's head? You're probably not going to do that. So the Jews believe they passed down a tradition that the ram that was sacrificed in place of Isaac on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22, actually had about its, its, its head a crown of thorns, okay? And so when Jesus is raised upon the cross, having carried wood up the mountain as the self-sacrifice in cooperation with the sacrifice of the father, and he wears upon his head a crown of thorns, he's reaching back to Genesis 22 to say, I know I fulfilled that prophecy in an immediate sort of way with the ram, but now I fulfill the prophecy in a final sort of way with my very self. God himself will provide the lamb. It's also interesting to note that uh, some of the rabbis and theologians have thought about what Abraham was, what was going through Abraham's head when he was performing these, these acts of obedience at Genesis 22. And um, some theologians and scholars will say that Abraham must have believed that God somehow miraculously was going to bring Isaac back to life. Abraham must have believed that God was going to bring Abraham, that God was going to bring Isaac, his son back to life. Okay. So Abraham is, is in Genesis 22 is holding on to the hope of resurrection. You can see why Genesis 22 is a, is a linchpin in scripture. It's like, it's so important in one of the most exquisite passages of the old Testament. So when we see Jesus upon the cross crowned with thorns, it brings in all of this resonance from Genesis 22. All right, what else is going on here? So God himself will provide the lamb. There's another fascinating uh, thing happening, parallel going on here. So the, the gospels will tell us that the day on which Jesus is crucified is preparation day, preparation day for the Passover. What does that mean? Well, it means it was the day that the lambs for Passover were sacrificed in the temple. Now, Josephus, who is a first century historian, tells us that millions came to, or up to a million Jews came to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover every year. So you can imagine that the priests in the temple were sacrificing lots of lambs. Now, the law prescribed that the sacrifice of the lambs did not, should not start until sundown on preparation day. But this would not give them enough time. This would not give the priest enough time to sacrifice all the lambs required. And so the rabbis got together and they asked themselves, how can we be obedient to the prescriptions of the law while also allowing us um, logistically time to actually complete the sacrifice? So what they decided is that they would interpret sundown as the time that the sun arcs in the sky and begins to slope downwards. What time of day is this? Is this? This is about noon. What time of day was Jesus raised up on the cross? About noon. Okay, so at the same time, about a quarter mile from Calvary, that Jesus is being crucified, the lambs in the temple are being sacrificed for Passover. And if that's not enough, get this. 
the priests had devised a very particular way of roasting the lambs after they had been sacrificed. They would take one spit and they would run it from top to bottom through the lamb. Then they would take a second spit and they would run it perpendicular to the first spit and they would take the two front legs of the lamb and they would stretch them out and tie them to that other spit such that if you can imagine, if you've been imagining this in my head as I just in your head, as I describe it such that the sacrifice of the lambs in the temple in the first century was referred to by Jews as the crucifixion of the lambs. I'm not making any of this up. So at the same time, that Jesus is being raised up. His arms are raised, are are drawn apart on the cross and he is raised up the same time, a, a quarter mile away in the Jerusalem temple, the lambs are being sacrificed for Passover and their, their arms are being stretched out on their own cross as well. This is amazing imagery going on here. Jesus his, his arms are stretched forth. He suffers. And at the end of his suffering, he, he utters these beautiful words, I thirst. And then we're told that uh, a sponge is taken, dipped in vinegar, raised to his mouth, and our Lord drinks. Okay. This is a very important detail. Um, thankfully, uh, Dr. Scott Hahn has a beautiful book where he talks all about this. It's called The Fourth Cup. In this action of drinking upon the cross, Jesus reaches back and he links his last supper with his passion. Why, how, how does he do that? Why do I say that? Well, scholars who know the Seder meal, the Passover meal, understand that at the Passover meal, the Jews drink four cups. But when they study the last supper account, it looks as if Jesus and his disciples only drink three cups. And then we're told that they sing a hymn and then they go out to the Mount of Olives. And it appears that they do not finish the Passover. They do not drink the fourth cup until Jesus is on the cross and he says, I thirst and vinegar, which is spoiled wine is raised to his lips And Jesus, by drinking of it, signals that finally the Passover is finished. And then what does he say? He says, it is finished. Now, that phrase is so perfect because it can be interpreted in so many ways and and virtually none of them are incorrect. But one of the ways that we can see uh, this this phrase, these last words being interpreted is what is finished? The Passover is finished. The new Passover is finished. Why is this so important for what we're talking about here today? It's so important because at the last supper, according to Luke twenty two twenty, Jesus takes in his hand, the chalice, the third cup of the Passover. And he says, this is the kind of diatheke in my blood. That Greek phrase that we got in Jeremiah 31, 31. What does kind of diatheke mean? It means the new covenant. This is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus institutes it at the last supper, but then he actually completes, he doesn't, he doesn't finish the Passover. He doesn't complete it until he has offered himself on the cross. And then it is finished. I'm going to rewind here just for a moment 
to give you another amazing detail. So I just described to you how Jesus was crucified on preparation day. Now, if you're an astute reader, you would say to me, hey, that sounds inconsistent because Jesus already celebrated the Passover. And indeed you would be right that there appears to be inconsistencies. But what recent scholarship has shown is that there were different Jews in Jerusalem who would celebrate the Passover via different calendars. So for example, the Essenes were a sect of Judaism who celebrated the Passover according to a different calendar. There's, there's very clear evidence, in my opinion, that Jesus celebrated the Last Supper with the Essenes. I'll give you one detail just to bolster this for you. Jesus tells the disciples when they ask, where should we prepare the Passover? To go into the city and to follow a man who's carrying a jar of water. This would have been an odd thing. Why? Because men didn't carry jars of water. But there was this small group of men living in Jerusalem who did carry water. They did draw water. They did that chore that was considered women's work. Why? Because they were a celebrate, a celibate pseudo-monastic community called the Essenes. And so the man that the disciples follow goes into the Essene quarter. And there in the Essene quarter, in one of the homes of the Essenes, they prepared the Passover. So Jesus celebrated the Passover with the Essenes earlier in the week than the rest of the Jews did. Why is this significant? The Essenes also believed that uh, temple worship was illegitimate. Um, One of the reasons for this was because the high priesthood had been usurped for political office and was no longer um, filled. The role was no longer filled properly by the right person. And so the priesthood had become corrupt specifically the high priesthood and the Essenes did not consider temple worship to be legitimate. What did this mean? Well, temple worship's not legitimate, but the Passover lamb has to be sacrificed in the temple. So how did the Essenes deal with this inconsistency? They didn't have a Passover lamb at all when they celebrated the Passover. What this means is that if Jesus celebrated the Passover with the last, excuse me, celebrated the last supper, the Passover with the Essenes, and there's clear evidence for that. It means that Jesus's last supper did not have a Passover lamb or did it? Indeed it did. God himself will provide the lamb. And this is why we, we see Jesus leaving the Passover undone, not to forever leave it undone, but rather to go to Calvary to sacrifice himself as the lamb And then to say, it is finished. It is finished. When he says it is finished, he bows his head and he gives up his spirit. He enters into a rest. Okay. And this is another way in which Jesus is going to, he's going to reach back into the old Testament. He enters into his rest. Just as Adam was put into a deep sleep, Jesus is put into a deep sleep. When Adam is asleep, his side is pierced. When Jesus is asleep, his side is pierced. Out from Adam's side is taken the rib with which his bride is fashioned. From the side of Jesus comes something as well. Blood and water, which is a symbol of grace. Grace by which his bride, the church, is formed. And then we see something exquisite happening. Jesus wakes up 
And when he wakes up, he's in a garden with a woman. I'm going to say no more until we keep reading. Skip ahead with me to John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter then came out with the other disciple and they went toward the tomb. They both ran, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying and the napkin which had been on his head not lying with the linen cloths, but light up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid him. Saying this, she turned round and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not hold me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. So Jesus is put into a deep sleep. While he is asleep, his side is pierced. Out flows blood and water, a symbol of grace by which his bride, the church is formed. When he awakes, he finds himself in a garden with a woman, just as Adam did. Interestingly enough, that woman does not recognize him. She mistakes him for the gardener. Who is the first gardener? Adam is the first gardener. When does Mary finally recognize Jesus? When he says her name. What is one of the first things that Adam does when he is awakened and meets his bride? He says her name and when he names her, he claims her. The same is happening here in our scripture. Jesus sees Mary and when he names her, he claims her. We get this interesting phrase here. Do not hold me. What's going on here? This points to two things. This phrase points to two things. First of all, I want you to go back with me to the Song of Songs. If you haven't already started to see the nuptial imagery unfolding here, this will make it very, very evident. I'm at Song of Songs, chapter three, verse one and following. Listen to this and see the parallels. Upon my bed by night, 
I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave no answer. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and would not let him go. I held him and would not let him go. Clear parallels, right? You want to see, uh, you want to know something else fascinating? In scripture, it's not uncommon for angels to be called watchmen. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. Clear parallels going on here. When we have this interesting phrase, do not hold on, do not hold me, uh, pointing us back to the nuptial imagery at Songs 3. There's another way that this simple phrase, which seems uh, seems a little cold, actually points to exquisite nuptial imagery. Why do I say that? Turn back to the first pages of Genesis where we are told that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This idea of clinging, I believe, is conveyed and brought up in the simple phrase that Jesus uses, do not hold me. Now, if there's nuptial imagery going on, why would Jesus say something like this though? To understand what might be going on here, we have to understand wedding practice in Judaism, specifically, you know, in in first century Judaism. In first century Judaism, weddings were celebrated in two stages. First, you had the betrothal stage where a husband and a wife would consent. They would exchange consent. They would exchange vows, but they would not live together. After the betrothal, after the exchange of vows, the husband would go back to his father's house and he would build a room onto his father's house. And then when he was finished building a room onto his father's house for his bride, he would go back to the bride's home, take her and take him back to take her back to himself into his father's house. Why is this fascinating? Do not hold me for I have not yet ascended to the father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Jesus elsewhere in scripture talks about how um, he's going to prepare a place for us. So what we see here going on is that Jesus indeed names Mary, claims Mary, and yet they are still just in the betrothal stage, if you will. But there will come a time when Jesus will come back for Mary and take her back with him to his father's house where they will live together in perfect unity and intimacy. But that's not the case just yet. And yet, Jesus, with a heart that beats full of love, cannot stand to wait that long. And so what did he do? At the Last Supper, he took in his hands the chalice, 
And he said, this is the kinadia theke in my blood. And when he did that, he changed the chalice, the wine into his body, blood, soul, and divinity. So that when you and I receive Jesus in Holy Communion, we are indeed receiving the kinadia theke, the new covenant, the most perfect covenant, which fulfills all other covenants. Why? Because in a covenant, it's not like a contract, with, which is an exchange of goods and services. A covenant is an exchange of persons. And in the Eucharist, I have the most perfect covenant there possibly can be because Jesus gives himself to me, body, blood, soul, and divinity. And if I am reciprocating that, I give myself back to him. The Eucharist is our new manna, right? If you go back to the Old Testament and you read about the manna, the manna, we're told the manna tasted like honey. How is the promised land described? A land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, the manna, which sustained the people during their exodus as they awaited to arrive in the promised land, it was a foretaste of the promised land when it tasted like honey. This is the Eucharist, our new manna, which sustains us in our exodus as we await the father's house. We await the bridegroom coming back to take us back to what he has prepared for us at his father's house. This new manna is a foretaste of what is to come. Perfect union and intimacy with God himself who can make us happier than anyone possibly can because Jesus is happiness himself. Jesus is happiness himself. This is everything that is contained in the beautiful, exquisite story of scripture. It's everything that Jesus has prepared for us from the beginning of time. It's his desire and his longing from the first moments of creation. Jesus says this in the gospels. I have longed to eat this Passover with you. Can we see this? Can we see this? Say the same back to him. Fulton Sheen said, the greatest love story of all time is contained in a tiny white host. And St. Jose Maria Escriva says, Jesus has been waiting for you in the tabernacle for 2000 years. Our God is a God who is love. But even more than that, our God is a God who is in love. This is what we see when we gaze upon the crucifix and with the eyes of faith and a heart that knows it is loved, this is what we see when we gaze upon Jesus in the Eucharist. He who loves us so much to die for us, to rise for us and to continue dwelling with us and giving himself to us in Holy Communion. Jesus, make me worthy to receive you. Make me grateful for all you have done and give me the joy of your resurrection as I approach you as often as I can in Holy Communion. Praise God.